0: Good morning Calvary. It's so good to be with you. My name is Thomas if we haven't met I get to be on staff and open up God's Word with you on the weekends and I want your brains to already start clicking in and start imagining some things with me so that we can track together today. So imagine that somebody has gifted you the ability to have a weekend with no responsibilities and no commitments. And for those of you with little kids, no children. What would you do if you had that? The fall is like perfect. Maybe you go see the colors. Maybe you go get a pedicure, a manicure. Maybe you stay home and just watch something on TV and you relax. But if you had this gift, what would you do? How about this one? If you could go back in time to any past decision you've made, and make a different decision, what would that decision be? For me, I would have started Rogaine way earlier, like <laughs> six or seven treatments pretty heavy Monday through Friday. But what would that decision be if you could travel back in time? I Imagine this, somebody gives you the opportunity to have a new job and you can live wherever you want. What job would you take? Would you keep the job that you have or would you start something new? Where would you live? Would you stay here in Colorado or would you travel somewhere different? Okay, how about this one? What if somebody today on your way out handed you one million dollars? And you could do whatever you wanted with it. What would you do? Would you pay down some bills? Would you pay off your house? Would you buy something really cool? Would you invest somewhere that you've really been wanting to invest? What would you do if you had those resources? All right, last one, best one. What would you do if you had a great high priest? You don't have like an imaginative character box category for that one do you like you can imagine what I do with the, with the weekend you kind of imagine if I go back in time what I would do differently what I would do if I could have a job or live somewhere if you had a million dollars I got some ideas what if you had a great high priest and it's like uh, priest um I don't know I, I guess confess something I don't know like do you tithe I, I don't know And that's the sorrow of coming into today's text, because what a great high priest Jesus offers is greater than anything we could imagine with a free weekend or a million dollars or really anything. But because we don't understand what priest means and what function Jesus plays, we're just missing out you're missing out, I'm missing out on imagining, just imagining how life could be different, how tomorrow could be different, because I have a great high priest who is in the heavens. That's how our text begins, It's the Heinzman's read. Since therefore we have this, all that imagination, since we have this opportunity, since we have this resource, since we have this then let us, like, let us imagine and respond, what would we do? And the text says that we would cling fast, that we would draw near because of this great high priest. So if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to open up Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to come back to those three verses that we started off with at the very end. But Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, begins to unpack what is priest. Because if we don't even have a category for it, how can we imagine the goodness and greatness and resource that Jesus is for us today? So Hebrews chapter five, verse one says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So this role of priest is a a, a role that They've been chosen for. God is going to appoint them to, as we'll see. That God instituted these priests. And what priests do is they minister on behalf of men. This means humanity. Men and women, young and old. They are kind of the go-betweens of God and the general populace. Because God chose not to reveal himself to every single person individually in the Old Testament. God instituted this office of priesthood. And if you've been tracking with us through the book of Hebrews, we've been in that wilderness season where Moses brought the people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness to this place of promise. And journeying through the wilderness, many of the things were instituted, the law, this covenant, and the priesthood. And what God instituted was from one of the families of Israel, they called the, the Levites, they would appoint priests. And so if you want to, you don't have to, but you can zip all the way to Exodus chapter 28. It's only one verse. If you just want to listen, that's totally fine. Exodus 28 is where God institutes for the people of Israel from the tribe of Levi that they would be a tribe of priests and they would officiate. They would be the representatives. They would be the go-betweens. They would be the councils of the relationship with God and man. And so here in 28, verse 1, this instruction to Moses, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. And so God institutes this, and God appoints the very first priests, Aaron and his sons. And they are the counsel, the mediators between the people and their sin and the people and their thanksgiving. And God. And so they had certain functions in which they would offer both gifts of thanksgiving and offerings of sin to mediate and keep this relationship good. Probably the the closest thing I could think of this week to think about our need for a priest would be like if you're in legal trouble, you want a lawyer because they know the systems, they've been trained in the law, they'll be your representative. So when you stand before the judge, they will mediate the relationship between justice and you. So you don't have to stand on your own defense because I don't know what to say. This is a weighty relationship, and I would love some help, counsel, mediators, representatives. And so that's what the priests are instituted for. Now, what it says here in verse 1 is that every high priest. So amongst the priests that have this office, there is one position, Called the high priest. And the high priest is exactly what you would think the highest priest. And they have a unique function that once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which we, if you're in the Jewish community, celebrated just a few weeks ago, September 15th, the Day of Atonement is which the high priest would first offer sacrifices for their own sins because they're sinners too, they're not perfect. And then they would enter what's called the Holy of Holies, which was the holiest place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, which is where the mercy seat was. And there they would make a sin offering on behalf of all the people so that all of the people and all of their sins would be forgiven and cleansed. That was the function of the high priest. And Jesus is the greater than, the great high priest, one who is greater than this high priest. And he has other functions as well. Look at verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So when you approach a priest, sometimes it's like, I, don't, I wouldn't want to draw near to that person because they're so much better than me. They're going to make me feel rotten by their self-righteous. They're going to judge me. That's, not exact. That's actually the opposite of what they should be doing. A priest, look at here, should be one who understands their own sins first. They're not better than the community. Oftentimes you'll hear me say from up here, I'm the biggest sinner in the room. You know why I say that? It's because I am in tune, aware of my own sins and how deep they go. And how entangled I can be. And so because they recognize their own weakness, they can deal gently with those who come to them because they know the people who are coming to them are coming in weakness. That the people who are coming are wayward. They're lost. Or that people who are coming to them are ignorant. They just don't know. They just don't know who this awesome God is. And so... The priest is the one who deals gently with the wayward and the weak and the ignorant. But unlike the priests on earth, the the tribe of Levi, Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. He was perfect in all that he did. Look at verse 4. We'll get to that in a second. But in verse 4 it says, no one takes this honor for himself of, of being the high priest. That he's actually called by God as Aaron was, we just read that, Aaron was called by God. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him. So the, the role of high priest is not like a, a political office that you run for and try to get a campaign going so that they can elect you to this position of honor or power, and then all of a sudden you owe favors to whomever and it becomes really corrupted. It should be pure. Because those who are in this position, like Christ, are called and anointed and then appointed to be high priest. No one's seeking this honor for themselves, but God is doing this work. And then the author of Hebrews quotes two passages about Jesus, his appointment and his recognition. The first one is from Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. We've looked at that earlier in Hebrews. And the second one is this. In another place, this is from Psalm 110, verse 4 that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, have you guys ever heard the name Melchizedek? All right, if you have to name a kid soon, go, just go with it. Go with it. You can call him Mel, it'd be sweet. Melchizedek is a peculiar Old Testament character that we're going to have time to get into in future weeks. Chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek. He's an interesting character in the Old Testament. What I want you to know about Melchizedek is this today. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And then he was called the priest of the Most High God. And Abraham, the father of Israel, actually used Melchizedek as his priest. He paid homage to Melchizedek. And what we see here is that Jesus is in the priest forever. This lineage is forever eternal in the order of Melchizedek being both the king and priest. So Jesus is in the order of kingly priest, not just priest like Aaron and not just king like David, but the kingly priest that Israel has been looking for, which will be the eternal priest like Melchizedek. We'll get all into that in a few weeks. But here Jesus' role as priest is one that is everlasting. And it will have no end. It's not like he's going to fall apart for you one day. It's not like your request to him goes to the, you know, to the back burner at any point because Jesus is the priest forever in this line. And then it shifts the corner. So that's what a priest does. He's the mediator, the one that goes between God and man, offering sacrifices, making sure that our relationship with God is right. He is gentle with the wayward. He's gentle with the weak and the ignorant. He's the one having all of these duties, except Jesus was very different. And so it turns this corner in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, in the days that Jesus was on earth, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what He suffered. That this kingly priest, Jesus, who was without sin, offered up prayers with many tears and loud cries. What does that that say about Jesus? It says that Jesus suffered. That Jesus was not immune to the hardships of the world. And then he says that, that he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does it mean that he learned? Was it that he was disobedient and then he had to become obedient? No. Is that, it means that in his flesh, he learned what it was to be human through what he experienced. You can actually translate experienced, but his experiences being human are the experiences that you and I have, which are hard experiences, sorrowful experiences, painful experiences. So what this says about the priest Jesus is that even though he didn't have sin, he entered our world and took our sorrows and our sins upon himself so that he experienced everything that we experience in the flesh. Every sorrow that we experience was a sorrow that he experienced. And you just look at the Gospels and you see this remarkable life that Jesus is living in the Gospels where it says that Jesus was, was thirsty. Like he knew what it was to be thirsty. It so says that he was hungry. He was tired. He was betrayed. He was misunderstood. He was insulted. Those are things that I experience. Those are things that you experience. What happened to Jesus' dad, Joseph? Church tradition just says that he probably died. He knows what it is to have the loss of a family member. He knows what it is to cry out and groan for family members or loved ones that just are living a wayward life against God and wanting them to come back. He knows that sorrow too. What it does is it picks picks up this picture of Jesus as very relatable to us, which is good because it robs me, and maybe it robs you too if you do this, it robs me of shaking my fist at God and saying, you don't get it. You don't understand what it is to be me. You don't understand what it is to experience this loss or this confusion or to groan for change that's not happening. And Jesus simply says, I'm the high priest that intercedes for you, and I know exactly what it means to be you. I know exactly what it means to be you today. And I don't know what it looks like to be you today. I don't know what this week had for you this week. I know what this week had for me. And Jesus knows what it is to be us today. But more than just the high priest who had to offer sins for himself, he never had to do that for him, which makes him the great high priest. So let's go back up to chapter 4 where we began and look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Not only does he know our sorrow, he knows our struggle. He knows our struggle to do the right thing, to follow God, to be obedient. He knows what it is to be tempted yet without sin. Now so first of all, you have to understand that temptation is not sin. For you to be tempted today to walk away from God, to go against God's law, to not do the right thing that he's calling you to do, that temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. It's only temptation when that desire gives birth in us and then we follow it away from God. But he was without temptation or he was without sin in his temptation. Now some of us say, "Okay, see, that's why he's not relatable." Is because if he never fell into sin, he doesn't know what it is to be tempted like I am because I've really sinned in my life. I've really messed up in my life. But hear me, that's not true. He actually understands our temptation even to a greater degree than we experience temptation. So imagine temptation in degrees. So temptation comes our way and you get the first degree of it like, well, I, don't, I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do that. I don't know. I don't want to do it. So then it goes to degree two. And the pressure gets on more and more. and at some point, we all gave in, didn't we? But Jesus didn't. So Jesus experienced a degree of temptation beyond giving into it that you and I have yet to experience, because we all gave in to it. And as soon as you give into it, what happens to the temptation? It goes away. I'm not tempted to do it anymore, because I just did it. But Jesus kept experiencing greater and greater degrees of temptation until there was no more degrees of temptation except just going to kill you. That's the depth of his understanding of our temptations. Does he seem like a reasonable place to go in our time of need in temptation? Absolutely. Imagine the difference, okay? So you have a running coach because you, you, you want to become a runner, and there are two coaches in front of you, and one running coach tells you this. Listen. I know exactly what it is to persevere through hard runs and, and hit that wall and your body just collapsed, but you got to keep on going. Really? What, what race was that in? Well, I was running the turkey trot in Thanksgiving, like this 5K, Whew, brutal, mile two, wipe me out. Like, no. And the other coach saying, okay, listen, I am, I am one of, I am the winner of the Leadville 100, a hundred mile foot race at the elevation of 10,000 feet where there's an elevation gain and change of 15,000 feet over 30 hours, I know what it is to hit the wall. You're like, yeah, I'm going to go with option two here. And that's Jesus. In all the ways that we've suffered and sorrowed, in all the ways that we've experienced temptation and trials, Jesus experienced the greatest degree of that in which he depleted it unto death. That's Jesus. And it says that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. I love this. The Sympathy is really empathy. You've heard the degrees of empathy. Like someone just says, I see that you hurt. Okay, that's, that's great. Next level is, I hurt because you hurt. Right. And the third kind of degree is, I hurt as you hurt. And, th- and as you gather with people who hurt as you hurt, that's where healing happens, Because they've shared that experience with you. And Jesus said, I have empathy, sympathy for those who are going through weakness. And I just love that God loves weak people coming to him because that's not us. We want weak people to go away. We want the weakness in us to go away. I remember playing sports through high school and in the back of our shirts had this saying, and I've seen it on the Marines too, like pain is what? Weakness leaving the body. Like, just get it away from me. And Jesus says, get it to me. All you weak, weary, wayward, ignorant people, come here. I know what it is to hurt as you hurt. Come here. And because I didn't have to first offer sacrifices for my own sins, the sacrifice I offered was for yours. And so come here and be forgiven. And so here is Jesus, the one who has passed through the heavens, sits in the Holy of Holies at the right hand of the Father, the position of authority on his throne. And when you think of thrones today, you think of the game of thrones. The throne game is to impress you, to intimidate you, to put fear into you. And what is his throne called? Right there in verse 16. His throne is called Grace. His throne's called grace. So you would approach it and know that you come to a place of grace. So he can dispense grace and mercy to you in your time of need. Grace is, grace is getting something that we do not deserve. How many of you have been a recipient of of grace just in in life? Yeah, when someone gives you something that you just didn't deserve, like, wow, you would do that for me. Wow, I didn't earn this just for me. Yeah, for you. So his throne is a place of grace to give you what you don't deserve. And then to dispense mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. How many of you have been a recipient of mercy in a relationship? Like, you shouldn't treat me that good. I can't believe you're treating me that well. Thank you. So God sends his son Jesus to suffer for us. He now sends his spirit to dwell in us, to suffer with us, so that with confidence, not with fear or intimidation, not with timidity, but with confidence, we approach his throne room throne room is probably similar to priesthood for us today. We don't live in monarchy, but the throne room is is everything to a person. That's where the position of power is, that's authority, that's provision, that's justice. I mean, everything that a person needs is in the throne room. That's where the king and the queen sit. And who has access to that? Very few people. But Jesus says, "I'm enthroned on a throne called grace." And I love weak and weary, wayward, ignorant people to have full access to me, to have full access to God through me so that in their time of need, I can dispense grace and dispense mercy because I know what it is to be you. That's so sweet and so kind of God to do this When I think of this story, I think of my own in so many ways, but I'll share another story from our community. When I first came on staff at Calvary, I met a wonderful woman named Pam Nystrom. And Pam was going through some really intense cancer treatments. And so I would visit her in the hospital, get full garbed up, go in and sit with her and ask her how things were going. She had two young kids at the house at the time. And we had the most wonderful conversations. And there was a season in which things were not going well for Pam. I so, said, Pam, how are you doing today? Like, this is, this is hard um, treatment. And she said, you know, i would think a lot about Job. And I always had this problem with Job. If you don't know who Job is, Job's an Old Testament story in which Job goes through incredible sufferings, loss of family and fortune and, and future hopes and dreams. She said, I just think a lot about Job. And I always wondered, when Job was going through that suffering, why didn't he curse God and leave? And now I've realized that he couldn't because Job belonged to God. And God was sustaining him. And I can't, I can't leave God. Because I belong to him. And this is my hour of need in which he's just dispensing grace and mercy to help. And I thought, oh, only the Christian knows what it is to be carried along By priest Jesus, to draw near to priest Jesus. That's so different than how we often respond in sufferings, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that when we suffer and have a hard time, so many people want to withdraw from the community, from God, from one another, from his words? And this is telling us no, 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 do the exact opposite. Draw near, get close, get in the huddle here with Jesus. George Guthrie, a New Testament theologian, simply talks about the gravitational pull of Christianity. He says, For the Christian, we should have the gravitational pull to Jesus. So, gravitational pull is the natural laws in which if you drop something, if something falls, it will fall to the earth. The gravitational pull of the Christian should be whenever we fall, we fall into Jesus, not fall away. Remember, this passage is between two warning passages about falling away. And the confidence we have not to fall away is knowing that we have a great high priest that we cling to and that we draw near to in our time of need. Our gravitational pull as Christians should always be when there's sorrow, hardship, grief, suffering, loss, confusion, bewilderment, we just fall to Jesus, because he's for us, that the Father's for us, and the Spirit is for us, and they're ready to dispense grace and mercy in our time of need. So how do you cling, and how do you move towards Jesus? One of the ways is around the communion table. Communion, this is the Lord's table, that you would commune with. That's, that's intimate relationship language, intimacy, that you would draw near to someone. Communion, that you would come to have union with God and with others. There's so many other ways in which you would, you would pray, that you would gather in, in small groups, that you would write out your prayers, that you would read God's word. There's so many ways in which you commune with God, but this is one that he instituted for us. Like, we didn't think this one up. He appointed this for his church to be gathered around the Lord's table. And that table was established in Egypt in slavery and bondage and was then established as a remembrance in the wilderness. And the people of God would gather every single year to remember the mighty work of God's deliverance out of sin through his provisions and his grace and mercy through the wilderness to the land of promise. And so at the communion table is where Jesus was gathered with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. And there he took bread from the table and he took a cup from the table and said, these symbols that you guys have been sitting here, this is my body and this is my blood. And so that's why I want to participate with you at the communion table. So let's bow our heads now and prepare our hearts to receive communion. Father, I don't know, I don't know where everybody is in the room, but you do. And so, Father, I'm just praying that your Holy Spirit is just drawing people right now, just drawing people in, people who have been wayward. I pray you just drawing them in, Lord. For those who just don't know about you, I pray you're drawing them in. I pray for the weak in this room. I feel like their faith is failing. Would you just just draw them in? Just draw them in. Lord, as they hold communion in their hand. Oh, this is it. Would they cling to it? Would they hold fast their confession? Because we have a high priest enthroned in heaven advocating for us. Cheering for us, resourcing us. So we we hold fast right here to our confession. Our confession is established in in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, as we eat and drink, would we taste your nearness? in us in us Father I thank you for drawing near to us initiating all of this before we ever had a thought of you that you desired us before we desired you, that you died for us before we even tried to live for you. And without your mind, this is the body of Christ, friends. Put that in your hand. The nearness of God given to you, given to me. And so let us take in remembrance of him. And this is the cup that Jesus said is his blood. And it was poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. We are included in the many. How wonderful is that? And so we give thanks to you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins. That we are right with you. That we will be with you forever. And so take and drink in the remembrance of Christ. Sunday is Resurrection Day, friends. It's when we remember the resurrection of Christ, when we gather on the day of resurrection. It is the Lord's day to remember that he brings life from death. And he does this because he is a faithful and great high priest. Let us stand and worship him.